Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're discussing Star Wars The Force Awakens, directed by J.J. Abrams. Set 30 years after the original trilogy, it stars Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, Adam Driver and Oscar Isaac revamping the Star Wars franchise for a new era. So this is a very welcome Patreon request from Asante. Thank you very much for asking for this movie. We kind of scheduled it in the holiday season because Star Wars is one of those big holiday blockbusters that we all love. I'm a diehard Star Wars fan. Morgan is a more sort of affectionately casual Star Wars fan. But we both adore this film specifically, which came out in 2015 and is one of the best of the franchise and just like a perfect blockbuster with an amazing cast. So I think we'll have a lot to talk about. Yeah, I mean, we occasionally will say that we haven't rewatched something before recording because we know a movie so well. And in this case, we were both like, well, we definitely do not need to watch this again because we've both seen it so many times, which and I always try to watch stuff. But like, I feel like I could recite large portions of this movie. And as you say, like, I like Star Wars, but I'm not a huge fan. Um, I watched the originals when I was a kid, but I haven't seen them since then. I've kind of been vaguely meaning to for a while and just haven't gotten around to it. So when this movie was announced, I remember being interested and it was like a big event, but I wasn't someone who was chomping at the bit for more Star Wars stuff. But something about the way that they marketed it and the fact that it also got great reviews right off the bat. I went and saw this with my family at Christmas time, which was a few days after it had come out. And I remember like not looking at Twitter for like days on end because I didn't want to get spoiled and have a vivid memory of being in a big multiplex in suburban Massachusetts with my family watching this film and being like completely transported by it. And I think we've mentioned this on one of the other Star Wars podcasts that we've done. But just like the sound of the theme music right at the beginning of the movie is like a lizard brain thing that just like transports you back to childhood. And I wasn't even a big Star Wars fan as a kid. But like <laughs> it just has this power over you. And it was really one of the most like joyous, like big movie viewing experiences of my adult life. And we're not going to try to avoid going too deep down the well of like Disney is evil and Hollywood sucks. But I think part of what's interesting about this movie is that it represents a lot of the trends in Hollywood that I personally find despicable and think are like ruining movies as an art form. But as an individual film, like I think it's really great and does a lot of stuff in terms of like rebooting the franchise that is like (laughs) interesting and good. So it's kind of a weird combination. I mean, Star Wars has this sort of unique place because there's so many media franchises that have longevity and popularity. But with Star Wars, when it's actually good, you can have this combination of the absolute lizard brain nostalgia reaction. And it's, you know, an actual piece of real art, which is absolutely what this film is. And it's what like every studio is fucking desperate to trigger that nostalgia burst. But what they're actually getting is like the latest appalling and poorly conceived Ghostbusters reboot. It's like, we don't need that. (laughs) Nobody needs it. Well, I also think, and it's funny that it should have had this kind of reputation because obviously George Lucas did make those prequels, which were not well received and were some of the first sort of big movies I remember seeing 
But those were, what, like 20 years before this film came out. And Star Wars felt like kind of an untouchable property to me. Obviously, there was all of the sort of like side stuff going on in terms of like animated television shows and then like the, you know, spinoff books going on. Like there was this massive industry around the Star Wars. But in terms of like theatrical movies, it really felt like there were not going to be any more because he'd done the prequels. That was what he wanted to do. They kind of they obviously made a lot of money, but like people don't like them very much. And so it felt like this was finished. And then the fact that Lucasfilm was sold to Disney was huge. And so then when they brought it back, it felt both kind of like something was being tainted a little bit, but also like there was going to be more Star Wars. Like, how is that even possible? Like, it, like what? <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting in terms of just the landscape of other big multimedia franchises, because obviously Star Wars is like the biggest. It has every possible type of tie-in you could hope for. And... Prior to 2012, when Lucasfilm was sold to Disney, there's just this massive expanded universe of all the tie-in novels, which like in the 80s and 90s were deeply chaotic because there was no expectation whatsoever that there would ever be any other films. So writers were basically allowed to write whatever they like. (laughs) So there's all these famously weird tie-in novels and loads of characters who are massively popular in their own right, despite never having appeared in the movies. And then after that Disney acquisition, they made all of that expanded universe stuff officially non-canonical in 2014, which kind of set the way for the whole franchise to be rebooted with this film in 2015. And after that point, all of the canon was far more controlled and official, which in some ways is good because it means that you have this very coherent world building and like they can agree what sort of stuff is like appropriate for the story and like it can all be very organized so if like you have that sort of attitude towards it it feels very kind of satisfying to know that it's thought out so well but it does like remove a lot of the originality and weirdness that I think will help revitalize a franchise kind of as it grows which I think is one of the problems that we have now like six years later but right at the beginning here this is the point where the producer Kathleen Kennedy becomes the powerhouse behind the franchise like George Lucas has moved on he's essentially retired he literally saw this as a divorce um, and he was not happy with The Force Awakens. He was just like, this isn't different enough. Like you're basically rehashing it, which is technically true in many ways, but it's also an extremely successful film. I think we can both agree. But um, producer Kathleen Kennedy, her first film as a producer is E.T., which kind of gives you an idea of like where she was starting out from. And she has basically been one of the biggest producers of like this type of Hollywood blockbuster for the past 40 years. And her tenure at Star Wars has been a bit chaotic. There have been several films where directors have been hired and then shunted off halfway through production, which is not meant to happen. Um, But also she has produced some incredible material. And um, that kind of began with this movie where J.J. Abrams obviously is the director. They kind of went through various potential directors before then, but eventually decided upon him. He already had proven himself with the Star Trek reboot movie and with the movie Super 8, which is kind of a Spielbergian nostalgic uh, sci-fi film. So it's kind of in the zone. And a lot of people do see him as like a direct um, successor to Spielberg. I think that's a very simplistic and, if anything, extremely flattering towards J.J. Abrams' uh, summary of his skills. But it definitely is intriguing to see his trajectory from Star Trek to Star Wars, because the first Star Trek movie 
basically bears no resemblance to canonical Star Trek. Like he famously went on interviews and like said he didn't like Star Trek. He didn't really get it. He turned it into a Star Wars style blockbuster and you can really see the building blocks of this film there. But with Star Wars, he was like perfectly suited. And with this movie, he took so much stuff like aesthetically and thematically and emotionally that really succeeded with the original trilogy by Lucas and then kind of brought it into the new era. And one of the big changes is that this time around, a far more diverse cast. Yeah, I mean, I find both of them really fascinating figures. I don't know a ton about Kathleen Kennedy because I think that she doesn't, like, I don't think there's a huge amount of personal information out there about her. It's a lot like Kevin Feige from Marvel, where it's like, they're hugely powerful, they're quite visible, but they're quite rightfully extremely, like, secretive and private. Yeah, so when I went to the Telluride Film Festival in 2009 as part of their student symposium, she was one of the people who did, like, seminars with the student group. So there were, like, 50 of us, I think, and basically, like, filmmakers and a couple producers would come and just answer questions. And I didn't know who she was at the time, and she was introduced as, like, Spielberg's producer, basically, because this was pre-Star Wars. And she was very kind of chill and quiet and super professional and like obviously smart and like I definitely remember her but she, she there was just not a lot you were getting and I obviously don't remember specific answers because this was over 10 years ago but I've thought about that so much since because uh, she's so powerful now and she was just this kind of like quiet and like very impressive but not very talkative woman at this seminar and like who are you it's so interesting <laughs> it was like, like this is the woman behind Jurassic Park like <laughs> I know compared to like Werner Herzog who also did one of these seminars like you can imagine a, a different type big, of big personality yeah I mean it's wild to consider in the context of the way the bad side of Star Trek of Star Wars fandom reacts to her because obviously as a prominent woman she's just at the butt of like continual hysterical misogynist shrieking you know she is the person to blame and it's like she is the person to blame but also she's the mastermind so you know it's hard to know how much to pin on like her specifically versus like the larger corporate project of disney versus like maybe there's somebody else who's making a lot of decisions like we just don't know who that person is but i think it's very interesting that when star wars first announced that it was going to do a bunch of or Disney first announced they were going to do a bunch of Star Wars movies. They basically positioned themselves as like the anti-Marvel in terms of like they would have these two big projects going on at the studio simultaneously. And Marvel was going to be very consistent and very kind of aesthetically consistent. And like they all were fitting into this one project. And they were going to hire all of these really kind of out there, interesting directors to do Star Wars. And that uh, did not happen because they then fired all of them. So I, I mean, it's really unusual to have people fired from movies while they're being made. Like, that just does not happen. So clearly this was a troubled time at the studio, and they're now just not making movies over there, which is pretty fascinating. They've obviously decided to reassess what they want the plan to be. They're focusing on television at the moment in terms of the Star Wars stuff. But um, J.J. Abrams is also pretty interesting in terms of, like, how this is all fitting together, because... I feel a lot of ire at him for how the third Star Wars movie turned out, which, you know, you can listen to our episode on that. Like, it didn't end well. And I have always thought he was, like, fine. I think this movie is really wonderful. He directed the two-hour, I believe, pilot of Lost, which is an incredible, incredible piece of television. 
but I don't think he's a particularly like interesting thinker. He is someone who can be brought in to like do an could do a good job on somebody else's project, right? Which is part of the problem with him finishing up this trilogy is that like he's not the person you want to come in to like yes. solve story problems. It's very easy right? to draw unflattering comparisons between him and Ryan Johnson creatively. Yeah. But, but I mean, and I obviously do not know this man, but by all accounts, he is genuinely a very nice person and has done, without making a fuss about it publicly, enormous amounts of, like, diversity efforts in Hollywood behind the scenes. Like, his production company does a ton of stuff in terms of, like, getting people in the door, projects helping out, like, underrepresented writers, directors, etc. So I feel quite positively towards him as like an individual. I just don't think his creative style as always works. But I think that it all really works in this movie because he's clearly coming from a place where he loves the material. He's really sincere in terms of like the diversification of the cast. I think he cared a lot about that in a real way. And like, it was important to him to do this. And like, he really wanted these characters to feel sort of real and central to the story and wanted the fans to love them. And I remember there being some kerfuffle about him saying something about, like, he wanted to be able to go to Star Wars with his daughter and have her, like, identify with the main character. And people got kind of twitchy about this because, you know, obviously Leia's in the originals and whatever. But I think it was coming from a good place of, like, you know, you want the main character who's, like, an action star to be a woman. And that's part of what is great about this movie, right? Is that the, like, hero's journey happens to a female character in a way that's still quite unusual for big blockbusters of this type. Yeah, and also because of the setting of Star Wars, I feel like all of the characters are far less married to gender roles than the vast majority of American blockbusters. Um, We should definitely talk about casting because as with all Star Wars movies, the casting's incredible, but just before we move on, I've just realized we've not mentioned who wrote this movie. kind of a key part of the job um obviously jj abrams is kind of credited as one of the three screenwriters but you also have lawrence castan who wrote two of the original trilogy he's um he's a screenwriter in his 70s and michael arndt who is a middle-aged screenwriter who wrote little miss sunshine so you've got kind of an interesting group there this movie went through like a bajillion drafts over the course of three years they had a lot of people working on it but it's one of these things where the earlier drafts were unrecognizably different. And there was also all this material that George Lucas had left over from his own ideas for the third trilogy, most of which like never made it into these films, but there was like occasional things getting picked out and put back in. Yeah, and Kazdan was the was responsible for the solo mess as well. It's probably with occasionally having someone who's just like stuck around from the earlier I era. Mean, every element of solo ugh. Obviously, <laughs> like, legendary figure. But it is an interesting combination. I think Michael Arndt does a lot of, like, coming in when there have been multiple drafts. Yeah. And, like, rewriting. Very funny guy. I think he probably did a lot of the humorous stuff in this movie, which is very successful. And then JJ, I assume, was also doing a lot of just, like, basic plot setup. And Carrie Fisher had a lot of, uh, put a lot of help in. <laughs> As she so often did. Behind the scenes, uncredited script doctoring, although this time round they did make sure that she was at least credited in interviews with like helping put more jokes in and make characters more interesting and punchy. (laughs) Yes. Um, So why don't we talk about casting? Yeah. So the magic of Star Wars is that 
it skews towards character actors almost exclusively. Even the protagonists, who are all, of course, extremely gorgeous, are not the sort of Chris Hemsworths of the world, you know. There's absolutely no, like, roided up torsos in this franchise, which I greatly appreciate. Obviously, we do have Adam Driver, but Adam Driver looks like someone who maybe lifts planks or something. Um, I do believe he was a carpenter in one of his previous iterations. Um, But yeah, obviously, with uh, this movie, the big two, Daisy Ridley and John Boyega, unbelievably talented, charismatic, perfect chemistry with each other. Uh, We have done an episode on Attack the Block, starring John Boyega, which is his breakout role in 2011, but he did have some work in between then, but there was a bit of a, you know, no major roles in the four years between them. But as we mentioned in that episode, he met J.J. Abrams after Attack the Block and J.J. was like, hit me up in a few years, I'll find your role. And that is not directly how this happened. Boyega went through an extensive audition process, as did Daisy Ridley. But I mean, it's just electrifying to see them both appear in this film because from the first like few minutes of both of those characters arriving in the film, their personalities are so clear and so emotionally compelling and the performance is so fresh and exciting and you just love them and like everything from like the music to the costume design to just like the world in which they're introduced is so, so effective. Well, it's also just great screenwriting and I don't know who was responsible for that. And I think a lot of this movie was like written in quotes kind of just as they were going along because I think it was kind of a mess behind the scenes that's based just on sort of like stuff people will say kind of sideways in interviews. People seem, again, to talk really highly of J.J. Abrams, so I don't think it was like a disaster. I think it was just kind of like (laughs) there were a lot of people involved in the screenwriting and they were like Harrison Ford like broke his leg and there was all this stuff kind of going around. But um, the finished product... I think this, like, screenwriting as we see it as the audience is just, like, really, really superb in terms of, like, classical Hollywood blockbuster stuff. They introduce the characters and what they want so efficiently. Like, you just get these people. I think the, like... I mean, the first act of this movie is so good because, like, you get, like, the kind of the three intros, basically. You get the one for Ray, you get the one for Finn, and you get the one for Poe and Kylo Ren at the same time. Yep. And Ray, Poe, and Finn are kind of echoing the roles of the original trilogy characters. Um, You could kind of argue that Finn is almost in the Princess Leia role. Like, you can't directly go them. Obviously, Ray Ray is, like, very Luke Skywalker. Um, And then Kylo Ren is this intentional Darth Vader copycat. But yeah, just, like, the different tones they set for each of those characters. And you immediately also get the age difference between Ray and Finn, who are both explicitly really young, And then Poe, who is much more experienced and cocky and is just like this cool, suave, old school hero. And it's just like, ah, love him. Well, but like the scene where she, like you see her doing the scavenging. So you immediately understand her as like a very competent and technically skilled person. You see the interior of the little like ship where she's living, which she's Mm -hmm. tried to give some personality. The like the little flowers that she's got, the thing where she puts on the helmet Oh, she looks so young when she puts on the helmet. Right, it's like she's a child, right? And then also the sense of wanting something else that's outside somewhere, Mm -hmm. but that she's kind of trapped in this empty place. Um, I just think that scene, and like I've seen the screenplay page for that. I feel like that went around Tumblr a lot years ago. And again, who knows who actually wrote that, but the combination of the writing and the execution is just so efficient. And the performance, of course, right? Like it's just... (laughs) 
Like, you know who that person is. Also, like, all of the world building in Star Wars is so naturalistic. They have this huge budget to create these literal alien planets. And even though this is, like, this is a different location to Tatooine, but of course we think of Tatooine because it's a desert planet, but, like, you feel like they're actually real environments because the production design is so incredibly high quality. And part of that is just like, they've got an incredible number of artists working on making stuff look realistic. And part of it is obviously the fact that there's loads and loads of practical effects instead of CGI. Um, But no one else is doing it like this. And they went to the desert. And they went to the (laughs) desert. (laughs) Which like, I guess Dune and Mad Max also did, but like most movies, including like The Mandalorian, which is not shot in the desert. Like they're not doing that, right? I mean, also in terms of casting, I think it's worth lingering on Adam Driver a little bit longer because yeah, this was when he was like peak girls, period. Yes. <laughs> and I remember him being cast and all of my friends and I, who of course, you know, were watching girls in Brooklyn at this time, were like, Adam from girls, because he's also named Adam on girls, if people haven't watched, like, is going to be on in Star Wars. And like, he was the best thing about that show and like we all loved him on that show so we were both gleeful and like what the fuck because again if you're not familiar he basically plays like a sex freak on that show so it was like what is happening and I remember like Lena Dunham at all giving interviews being like lol like Adam Driver's gonna be in Star Wars and of course he would be asked about it in interviews promoting girls and be like I cannot tell you anything (laughs) about this but it was really clever in terms of like casting a couple of unknowns who, I mean, of course, John Boyega, I should not call him an unknown because he had been in Attack the Block, which was a big hit in the UK. But like, I had wasn't really familiar with him. A lot of people internationally and in the US specifically probably wouldn't really have known him. Daisy Ridley is, was fully an unknown. Like nobody knew who she was. She hadn't done anything. And then casting a couple of actors, especially Adam Driver, who were these kind of like, like hipster millennial people, right? And so you're getting in that kind of, like, we understand you people too, kind of thing. And this was before everyone had just decided Adam Driver was like the best actor of that age group, right? Like now he gets cast in everything. And this was before that. So it really did feel kind of like, what? And then he winds up being like, I think he gives the best performance in these movies. I think everyone in them is great, but he has the most interesting part. And like... He's very good at acting. We have established that based on, you know, his whole career. Oscar Isaac also obviously is one of our best actors, but his role is way less interesting. And so when the movie came out, you had a combination of this nostalgia factor and this sense of like real excitement about like these young actors who are so exciting and talented and we're going to be exciting beyond just Star Wars, right? Like Adam Driver's now very famous, like, in general, not just because he was the villain in Star Wars, right? And so I think the casting was just really smart on that front, too. And they balance the cast really well between, like, the old and new people, because obviously, like, this film co-stars Harrison Ford, and then you have, like, a bunch of secondary figures, like C-3PO and stuff, and Chewie. You know, they arrive partway through the film, so they really solidify the new characters before they bring back any of the nostalgia people. But I was thinking about this this week because I just watched the new Spider-Man movie. Um, I will not spoil it, but the new Spider-Man movie is good by MCU standards. I was like thoroughly entertained and was just like, good job. I like it. But it feels kind of so 
lightweight and disposable compared to The Force Awakens. And like, obviously, that's kind of the way Marvel films are because they make dozens of them every year at this point. So they're not like important historical artifacts like a Star Wars film, you know. (laughs) But that film is structured around like having this nostalgic crossover where you have the current young cast and then you also have people coming in from these films that were made like 10 or 20 years ago. But I was just watching it and I was like, literally the whole point of this movie is just to like bring nostalgic faves back. Like they're not getting particularly interesting storylines and the cast feels extremely overstuffed and there's loads of extraneous side figures. But when I think about this film, which is actually, I think, shorter than that film, hilariously, um, all of the older characters, they've really thought about where they would be in their lives. There's this extremely fleshed out political world for them to exist in. And you know, the franchise creators understand that you need to lay the groundwork for the younger people to actually be the protagonists and to be the most compelling characters, which they are. And it's one of the many reasons why the third film in the trilogy is so frustrating is because this movie is so smart when it comes to just the thematic concept of nostalgia, whereas The Rise of Skywalker is just like pure garbage and full of fan service nonsense. But with this film... Obviously, it is fully embracing nostalgia for the original trilogy. It is structured around getting rid of a Death Star lookalike. The villains are just directly the same as the old Empire, but at the same time, they're not, right? So the concept of this movie is that um, the First Order have essentially upcycled all of the uh, old spaceships and stuff that came from the Empire. So you've got these stormtroopers and stuff who look really similar to the old stormtroopers, but they're immediately far more emotionally compelling because we know that they've been kidnapped from birth and brainwashed. And that's where we see Finn's perspective. So we immediately get like, it's far more interesting to think about the concept of a a stormtrooper in this film specifically, which they don't really deal with very well in the later ones, but whatever. (laughs) And they are kind of like echoing the real life phenomenon that was really exploding at this point of like neo-Nazis who have like nostalgia for the old Nazis and are kind of this watered down shitty douchebag version. And that is absolutely (laughs) what Kylo Ren is because he is explicitly a toxic Darth Vader fanboy because he's Darth Vader's grandson, but he has like no real understanding of his own history. And you, at the same time, you understand why he turned out like that because he had these parents who were like not perfect and then he was this very privileged kid who also was given enormous power and then was manipulated by like an older guy and that's not to say it's the parents fault because like this is one of these eternal very stupid debates that you get within star wars fandom that kind of treats the characters as if they're real people rather than narrative thematic devices (laughs) but um like with kylo ren you see in this film of course princess leia and Han Solo are going to be fucked up parents. Like, of course they are. And also, of course they're going to be divorced. And the fact that, like, people a lot of the time were, like, quite angered by this, I think. Which is, like, I understand it emotionally because it's like you ship the characters, but, like, it makes sense. I feel like this is coming from you being deep in a place of like Star Wars fandom that I don't have to engage with because no. I do no, not No, you're just like watching this like this. from like the outside critical perspective. But like even I was like, because I wasn't really like embedded in the fandom of the original trilogy. Like I'm a huge Star Wars fan. You know, I was not like a child when those films came out, but like it, it's just like such a, like a weird thing to be writing. Like as a screenwriter, it's like the idea that like, if you want to tell a good story, you're going to have to like piss off this like vast swath of viewership. Like all the people who were like really annoyed that Luke Skywalker wasn't this perfect heroic mentor figure in the second film. It's like, no. Well, I mean, I do think it is quite bold to break up 
Hannah oh, Leia it's very bold. There. It is probably it's one of the boldest things that J.J. Abrams did. And like, in retrospect, I'm quite surprised he did it. Yes. I mean, I think just everything to do with the Kylo Ren character in this movie and the sequel is just so unbelievably well executed. Like, yeah. I just think they nail it so much. And this film has a sort of Shakespearean quality when it comes to that character and the um, Han Solo stuff. I think Harrison Ford is great in this movie. It seems like he actually was like, I'm going to try and actually make an effort, which for many years he really had not done so much. But the like balance in both films of someone who is obviously like just massively morally compromised, but clearly miserable and completely damaged and fucked up. And who's, like, had their brain tampered with from, like, a very young age by some, like, huge evil force, which I believe is strongly implied at some point in one of those movies. It's really compelling. And Adam Driver is one of our greatest actors. So, and he's specifically good at doing that kind of moral queasiness, right? So he can make you really feel for someone while also being like, I mean, objectively, you're not good. Which is yeah. what's happening here. Yeah. He's like an extremely emotionally compelling character. Yeah. And I think in this film specifically, like you obviously get more of what's going on in his head in the next movie. And he's more kind of human in that film because you have all the like scenes where he and Ray are like having visions of each other. But I think the way they handle him in this film is one of the things that makes it so great just in terms of like the, the theatrics of like popcorn cinema because he's got that mask on for most of the film. And Adam Driver's face is one of the like greatest weapons in current cinema. Like it's just so good. And this he was like quite young at this point and like really peak peak just like great face situation. And they do his hair really beautifully. <laughs> yeah, he is like he's never suffered from like hat hair. His hair is luxuriant when he takes that mask off and you're yeah. like, "Oh, that's what's under there?" So Obviously, you know it's coming because we all know what Adam Driver looks like, but they make you wait for it for so long. And they have those two scenes, like bookend scenes, where first he's like manipulating, basically torturing Poe, like right at the beginning of the movie and getting stuff out of his head. And then you have the scene with Ray later, but it's a similar setup, except that he has the mask off, which obviously is significant, like symbolically for all these reasons, because she can sort of see into his head literally and figuratively. But the effect of finally getting to hear him speak normally and getting to see him, you're like, oh my god, this guy's so hot. Like, but also he's <laughs> evil. Like, what is going on? He's like really overly emotional, and just his his costume is fantastic because Adam Driver obviously is a tank, and the way they've designed his costume is that, of course, like his and Ray's costumes are both echoing the old imagery of the the Jedi and the Sith from all the other films, but all through the trilogy they've given them costumes that like directly mirror each other. So they're using the kind of like same fabric structure and stuff. So even if you're not noticing that, you're probably kind of noticing it in your hindbrain somewhere, which is really cool. But also just the detail of the helmet, which like you discover is completely purposeless. It's just there to like give him like yeah. a special voice so he can, because he like just desperately wants to be Darth Vader. And obviously that works on like the completely immediate thematic level of it just being like, oh, holy shit, he really is just like a cosplayer. But also the actual like role of Darth Vader in the original trilogy is so different because when you watch the first film, 
the magic of Darth Vader is just that like he's so incredibly impressive. He's scary. He's mysterious. He has this incredible theme music, but he doesn't really have like much of a personality and he barely has an arc over the course of these three films because it's all contingent on, you know, the revelation that he's Luke and Leia's father and then his role within the narrative with the the main war with the good guys and the bad guys. And then he gets this kind of tiny redemption at the end. That character is all impact and no character depth whatsoever. Whereas this character is a guy who is all character depth and is trying to have impact, but like doesn't really in the same way because it doesn't work if you're not a really confident guy who's like also like 45 years old. Everything just bounces off Darth Vader, you know? Whereas Kylo Ren is out there like freaking out. And even from his very first scenes, they've got this tremendous moment where he and his troops are kind of getting Poe Dameron in that village right in the very first scenes. The point where like he stops a blaster bolt in midair and it's like shaking and you see both that Kylo Ren is really powerful and also that he's unbalanced, which is the design they have for his lightsaber because obviously his lightsaber is famous because it's got like the little, <laughs> the little like cross guard, which of course you'd end up just like fucking stabbing yourself with. <laughs> Incredibly silly design, but we love a silly design. But it, all the way through the trilogy, that lightsaber is just completely shaking and frazzling because he is so divided in himself that he can't build a lightsaber that functions correctly. He has always got one that's like a nuclear reactor that's about to just explode. And that is just like one of the many amazing behind the scenes design details that I love so much about (laughs) Star Wars. (laughs) Kylo Ren's buzzy lightsaber. (laughs) Well, also, you know, in this film, once he takes the helmet off, he's totally off the chain emotionally, right? And it's after this that you get the incredible scene where he kills Han Solo, which is just, like, amazing. That scene is just so good. Again, Harrison Ford doing real acting. You love to see it. And that, again, this sort of, like, Shakespeare Greek tragedy thing is really strong in that scene. And so much of these movies is on a tone of either being very funny or kind of almost campy in a sort of, like, mid-century like sci-fi way and that scene is completely played straight obviously the whole setup is absurd like why would this be happening but the actors are playing it with absolute sincerity and it's shot with absolute sincerity so it really hits home and then you have the subsequent fight he has with ray which like tips the balance of power in her favor and she messes up his beautiful face which we've only just first scene, you know, a half an hour before. And that's partly why I find the complaints about the movie being just a recreation of the first Star Wars film kind of silly. Like, obviously, it is deliberately structurally modeled off of episode four. But the emotional stuff going on in terms of like, what's really driving the plot is all about that conflict between those two characters to me. And this fact that it ultimately boils down to be all about this young woman figuring out she has this strange power and then like beating this evil dude is not something that you see in Star Wars. Like yeah. that felt so new to me. And, and also yeah. the, the, just the complaints about um, Starkiller Base, which is like the mega death star they have in this. Obviously it is just like doing the same thing. But in both of these films, it is like a classic MacGuffin where it is just there to like have everything else function around it, right? And you're far more interested in everything else. But even in that context, this time round, the Starkiller base is less important and less interesting. And it doesn't matter at all because 
I mean, we've spent like half an hour now talking about every other element of the film. Like, it doesn't matter right. that Starkiller Base is there. It's just like, that is literally like the little pivot that we're pivoting around. And what we're really into is just like all of these amazing characters. And we've not even really talked about like Finn and Poe yet. Well, one before we get into that, I just want to say one more thing about the Ray and Kylo stuff and just like that sort of emotional arc of the movie near the end. And I feel mm-hmm. like I told this story when we talked about one of the other ones, but I'll tell it again, which is that I rewatched this movie with my mom before we went and saw the second one of the new trilogy. And my mom is like not a Star Wars person. She's not a genre person. Um, her big story about the original Star Wars trilogy, which came out when she was high schoolish, was that like she and her friends only saw the first one and their main takeaway was that Harrison Ford was really hot, which like can't argue with that. She didn't remember anything about the Death Star. Like this woman knows nothing about Star Wars. <laughs> and we watched this movie and she totally loved it. Like she was so into it and was like vocally reacting at the television when Ray is like beating him at the end in that lightsaber battle. And not that, you know, blockbuster cinema really means nothing. But I was kind of like, oh, right, this is why people care about the stories being different, right? Is that like you get a, a girl doing a cool thing in a movie and like it is affecting in some way. And she, neither of us liked film number two, which I know you disagree with, but um, it was just really interesting to me to see how effective this film was, irrespective even of the like gender stuff in terms of like reaching an audience, you know, an audience of one who like really doesn't care about these movies at all. Like she was totally swept up in it. And I think that's a testament to the effectiveness of just like the filmmaking and screenwriting period, right? That like, it's just a fucking good movie. Part of which also is the secondary characters, some of whom I think work really well and some of whom maybe less so. I mean, Gwendolyn Christie as Captain Phasma, the ultimate Star Wars character, because it's like, do we need to know anything about her? No. Does she have a cool costume and a single personality trait that's deeply cinematic and incredibly fun to watch? Yes. Fucking love (laughs) Captain Phasma. Great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I hadn't even remembered her. She's She is fantastic. Yeah. There's four secondary actor, character actor figures that aren't like among the main like Star Wars saga canon cast in this that are like the heavy hitters. Gwendolyn Christie, Max Lancedo, who has like a small but really important role at the beginning of the movie. And I remember seeing the film for the first time and being like, shit, I know this guy. Like, who is he? Have I forgotten some key person from Star Wars canon? It's like, no, it's legendary character actor Max von Sydow. Um, But yeah, the other two are Andy Serkis as Supreme Leader Snoke. No one has ever been less relevant. God knows. Fucking doesn't exist. And then Lupita Nyong'o as Maz Kanata, which is... Mm, but mm, <laughs> That's the part of the movie that I think doesn't work. I mean, obviously, A, number one, the like trend of casting black actors in these CGI roles in sci-fi movies is not good. And if this was also during the period where she wasn't working very much, we later found out because Harvey Weinstein was basically like fucking over her career. So there was a lot going on that was not great, but she barely worked since winning an Oscar and then was like doing this. And I just remember thinking like, what the fuck is going on? But I also just don't think that that part of the movie particularly is great. Like it's fine, but it's definitely the least interesting to me compared to basically everything else, which I find pretty delightful. It gets into sort of J.J. Abrams' mystery box territory, which I'm concerned about. It's like I'm here to give you this prop. But on the other hand, it is always essential in a Star Wars movie to like 
have a section where you just kind of go to a bar for a bit (laughs) and then you continue with the rest of the story after five minutes so it's fine yeah and of course getting into the like upper tier supporting characters donald gleason oh fucking love donald gleason oh he's he's perfect based his shrieking performance on a real british nazi um And people were like, you're overacting. And it's like, no, I'm just doing it. No, he he really did. Um, Just absolutely fantastic detail. And Donald Gleason is just like, fucking love that guy as an actor. One of the kind of rare, talented nepotism lads. Well, when he was growing, obviously he is a nepotism case, but when he was growing up, up till he was a teenager, I think, his father was still just like a school teacher. So he seems much more well-adjusted than most of the other people He seems very well-adjusted. And also, he's not really in a position to become unwell-adjusted because it's not like he's fucking Chris Pratt. Like, he's Donald Gleeson. And uh, he's, like, the perfect villain in this because, like, when you've got one really serious, intensive villain, which is already something that the vast majority of blockbusters do not achieve, but they've got this incredibly compelling villain, and then you've just got to have, like, a couple of secondary villains who are just shit. <laughs> and the management. And I, yeah, yep. and I don't mean this as in they're bad characters. I just mean it's like, this guy is a fucking little worm. He sucks. He's got no redeeming features. He's funny. He's kind of scary in that he is this really volatile fascist who wants to kill everyone and has access to this giant fleet of soldiers. But at the same time, it's just very funny that he and Kylo Ren have been locked in the same office together and have to be co-workers when they hate each other's guts. And it's just like, there's just such a kind of um, a seething comedy beneath that little odd couple partnership where Supreme Leader Snoke has told them to hang out and they have to. And I'm just like, oh, moi, love it. (laughs) And like when Hux shows up in the later movies and (laughs) just has like a more of a shit role, tremendous. So they're kind of like the tier above Gwendolyn Christie as Captain Phasma, who is a glorified action figure. And I mean that in the most flattering sense possible. Fucking love her. So why don't you talk about Finn and Poe before I come in with my hot take (laughs) that you're not going to like? Okay. I don't even know what your hot take's going to be unless it's like, oh, don't ship them because it's like, that's meaningless to me because like, it's a fucking (laughs) fictional story. Um, But yeah, no, I love both of these characters. Finn obviously is like far more complex and interesting character. Poe's entire job in this movie is to be very charming and cool which he does with a plume, and I I love him. God, great role, great introduction to the Resistance. We don't need to know much more about the political background of the Resistance because like, it's extremely self-evident. And just the sheer charisma of Oscar Isaac is like fucking sailing into the sky for us. Uh, meanwhile, with Finn, we also have this incredibly charismatic and talented actor, but the character itself is just like far more complex and immediately like sets the whole concept of stormtroopers on their head because stormtroopers are like the archetypal cannon fodder in the background of all the other films and they function in a very sort of politically astute way almost accidentally in terms of just the way that like people will join the military or like the police or similar kind of fascist violent institutions and become part of just this group of people who are willing to hide their identities and do awful things while also being kind of incompetent, which is just like the the absolute stereotype of the stormtroopers. But we like never see the faces of any stormtroopers. And then the prequel trilogy introduced the idea that like the, pre- the proto stormtroopers were uh, clones. And then the Clone Wars cartoons introduced the idea that those clones were also victims who are like likable characters 
characters who were manipulated and brainwashed. But then with this movie, of course, introduces that idea to a much wider audience. And Fenn is like such a sympathetic character because you know right from the get-go that he's just a really nice person who just has a natural sense of ethics and he knows what what's right and wrong and he can't bring himself to kill people and he's quite young but at the same time he's not sort of like an unrealistically perfect hero in that situation like he is afraid very plausibly and like his main motivation in this movie is that he wants to run away and i just like i think it's a great role i think it's a fantastic setup for both this character and for the concept of stormtroopers that like in the end was not carried off by like the latter two movies I have less problems with Finn's role in the second film than Morgan does and a lot of people do I know John Boyega was not happy with his role in that film but I think the third film is like where he was really let down we don't need to go into that you could listen to our episode on the rise of Skywalker but like if only the trilogy had like given Finn his due in the way that Rey mostly got her due and obviously she is the number one lead but Finn is the secondary lead and his character is just so interesting here and is like kind of in terms of his development like he is more in a larval stage at this point in the story than Ray is because Ray gets to have this full hero's journey arc within this film where she ends up in this position of power and with Finn you know he spends a lot of time escaping and he hasn't like fully come into his own at the end but I do like that like they do have these different arcs that kind of overlap with each other and he and Daisy Ridley have amazing chemistry and so do he and Oscar Isaac. And I just love kind of how warm the friendships are in Star Wars. They did a really great job of kind of echoing the dynamics that they had between the three characters in the original trilogy. And um, yeah, I am also a diehard Finpo shipper. So <laughs> okay, it was very romantic. <laughs> Here's my rebuttal. Well, I think part of the problem with Finn's character is that what's actually revealed by the end of the first movie and then totally taken up by the second movie is that he's actually not the second lead. Kylo Ren is the second lead, which is a problem for the film's period, right? And especially for his character and for John Boyega, who got completely screwed by this whole enterprise. I think there's some problems with the writing of that character from the beginning. I think he's an unbelievably charismatic actor and like you just love to watch him on the screen like he's just so enjoyable to like watch make jokes but he's never remotely believable to me which I think is fine but I'm pressing what I'm about to say by saying I think it's fine that this isn't the case but if you want to take the character in a more dramatic direction it becomes a problem it is not remotely believable that this is like an incredibly traumatized man who's like escaped an institution that has been brutalizing him because the second he gets out he's like cracking jokes and it's just like a charm factory, which makes no sense psychologically. Like, it is completely absurd. And we're in the realm of the blockbuster, so you're just like, I accept this. This is fine. And also a film that's, like, watched by seven-year-olds. Right. But I think it inhibits him as a character. Yeah. I mean, they start from the get-go. They, like, permit Kylo Ren to be far more serious and, like, emotionally ambiguous. And his motivation is that mummy and daddy weren't very good. (laughs) Well, I mean, there's also, again, the, like, implied yeah, he the, has, the like, brainwashing bad things in his yeah. brain. Yeah, which is disturbing. But I think what you see in the second movie is the, like, natural progression of this sort of, like, well, he's the fun character. When, in fact, there really should be some more serious stuff going on from the beginning with this guy. Like, I get that they don't want to just be, like... <laughs> 
if this were a real, in quotes, situation, he would just be, like, completely, like, nonverbal because he's so fucked up, right? Which no one wants to see. But um, I just think they kind of start with a problem early there, and then it, like, gets bigger and bigger as it rolls down the hill, right? And then in the third movie, they try to be like, yeah, he's gonna do some, like, resistance fighting or something, and, like, it just doesn't Yeah. Work. And they also introduce another character who unfortunately is quite unmemorable as most of the new characters are in that film like I remember being so excited for her when I saw pictures I was like oh look she she looks so cool she's got like a space horse and then the film happened and I was like this entire film has immediately like been erased from my memory but like you get Finn kind of teaming up with this other group of former stormtrooper trainees who have escaped and they're led by a young black woman. So you've created a story that's about like a slavery escape narrative led by two black actors and then like done nothing with it. And it's like, no, J.J. Abrams, yeah. no, what? It's, it's bad. <laughs> My other hot take is that they absolutely should have done what they were planning to do and killed off Oscar Isaac at the end of this movie or whatever they were planning on killing him off. What, it, he, was, he was not supposed to survive this film. And then they were basically like, He's so charming and attractive. <laughs> what if we just kept him? Which is an impulse I understand. I don't completely disagree with you here because I know we both talked about this at length before the release of The Rise of Skywalker, but much like Captain America in the Marvel movies, I would have fucking loved Poe Dameron to die in the third film. I love this character. I'm happy we got three films of him, but I also think that like his death would have been fucking great. Like It would have been great. It's fine for him to die. They could have killed him off in film two and I would have accepted it. I think a lot of their story problems in film two are because they fucked themselves by getting too greedy. And they're like, there's too many characters now. We've got to give Poe an arc. And they don't have anything to do with him because his character in the first movie is just like flyboy hottie. And then they're like, he has to have angst or something. Let's have him yell at Laura Dern. And like, what? They did. Also, poor Oscar Isaac clearly was fucking miserable doing this so he would have been free the movies would have been better and oscar isaac wanted him to be gay so you know so the whole thing was bad so i think they should have cut him and then given finn more to do that's part of my solution for where these movies went wrong not so much a problem with this film and more something they should have done here that they did not have the guts to do that then got them into trouble Yeah, unfortunately, the casting was too good. This is what happens when you make a movie which has every single cast member is incredibly talented and charismatic. Like, doesn't happen often. (laughs) Yeah. So are there any other sort of technical things that you want to talk about? Yeah, we should talk about the music for sure. Yeah, obviously. And also just mention as like a side note, this film was shot in 35 millimeter film, not digital. Yeah, and they did, I mean a huge part of the like discourse around the movie at the time to a slightly uh, misleading extent was how much was practical effects. Yeah. But I think it is worth mentioning. Like, obviously there is like every shot of this movie has special effects in it somewhere. Like there's a massive amount of special effects, like all the like, you know, ships flying around, of course, CGI, but I think it does make a big difference. And like, you can tell that so much of it is really physically built And also the fact they have all the CGI is like in-house and is really high quality because as we've said many times, the problem with like complaining about quote-unquote CGI is actually that the CGI is bad. Yeah, like I don't have any issue with CGI. I just think it's usually not done very well. And I think if they've done a ton of physical stuff and then are using the CGI to like enhance that or to do something well and the physical stuff just like isn't going to work for a variety of reasons, 
all of that really makes sense to me. And I totally get why they do stuff like shoot the Mandalorian in Long Beach. In like, they basically, for people who don't know, they're like, what they can now do is project like on the walls or like there's some sort of LED screen in the walls and like that shows the desert. So the actors aren't just in front of a green screen, which is obviously a huge improvement for them because they can actually see where they're supposed to be as opposed to like looking at a tennis ball and being like, I guess that's a Hobbit. Like, I don't know. And like, I haven't watched that show by all accounts. It looks excellent. The production quality is unbelievably high in The Mandalorian. Yeah. The script is written in crayon. It's this yeah. just, I, I can't watch it. It's too stupid. <laughs> I mean, I, that's why I haven't watched it because you have not spoken highly of it. I'm sure it looks excellent, but I think you do really gain something by like going to the real places, yeah. building this stuff, right? And like just Daisy Ridley like interacting with all those things in her little ship apartment that I was describing at the beginning yeah. of the podcast. Like it feels so tactile and I real. mean, there's so many wonderful little droids, so many wonderful little Muppets. And yeah, like, then you can fucking have BB-8 with them on the press tour. You can have, like, actual BB-8 going to interviews and everyone's like, oh my god, it's the best dog I've ever met. I was <laughs> just going to say, I ball. can't believe we haven't mentioned BB-8. I was going to say him. I don't know why I've gendered BB-8 as a <laughs> male in my head, but it, he he is male to me. But, like, that fucking droid is a real thing. He's and so cute. Everyone was obsessed with that thing when this movie came and out, right? And the droids like, in these films have such strong personalities because yeah. they've got that Muppet logic behind them. And it's especially impressive in the context of BB-8 and R2-D2 because, like, R2-D2 is a fucking legacy character that has been in all of these films and is like a hundred years old canonically at this point. <laughs> and obviously so is C-3PO who, and they're both like joke characters to a certain extent, but BB-8 in this film is so great because it's much more of like a pet role and you immediately understand that instinctively. Probably if you're even like five years old, you're going to get it. And it's just like so well done because R2-D2 really feels like the most genuinely alien character in the franchise, I think. Like, he is a legitimate character. He's intelligent, but, like, his intelligence is, like, truly alien. He doesn't act like a human, which most of the other alien characters do. And obviously C-3PO is just, like, a silly cartoon butler human. <laughs> um, but, like, with BB-8, you're like, oh, this is, like, a really smart dog that can hack computers. <laughs> wouldn't we all want such a creature i mean what's not to love yeah it's just like the perfect pairing with poe dameron who's just there to have like the best hair in the entire world and to be slightly troubled but mostly just like be on the recruitment posters for the resistance <laughs> uh so you talk about john williams's score. yeah obviously the music in star wars is perhaps the most iconic film music in the western canon and it, it's just like incredibly impressive that he can return to this franchise again and again and continue to have the same caliber of work, which is impressive both for him as a writer, but also kind of in the context of a franchise with such longevity. Because like you said, you get this immediate, incredibly intense emotional response to hearing that music when you start watching a new movie to the extent where like in the couple of cases where one of the movies has really sucked the music just like elevates it so much because it's so impressive. But like, as we all know, the thing that John Williams does so well as a composer is like, he's doing classic symphonic work and he has really clear themes for the main characters and like the main concepts. So there's like themes that are attached to the force and the dark side and the resistance and so forth. And in this film, he creates a couple of just absolutely incredible new themes for the new characters. Ray's theme is 
just wonderful. It's just like completely on the same level as any other of the original themes from the original trilogy and just perfectly illustrates her personality and the mood we're meant to be in when we first meet her and she's on that desert planet, Jakku, and she's really young and full of energy and has this sort of light-footed physicality and she's sort of skating down the sand dunes and it's so cute and there's this sense of hope and youthfulness to her music. And then you have much like scarier music for Kylo Ren, but also the way he's composed that is like there's all these little pieces of musical subtext that tie into similar themes in the original trilogy music. So like if you listen to it a lot or you're into music theory, you can spot like so many ways in which he's tying them together in ways that you'll kind of pick up on subconsciously. John Williams is a genius. It's an incredible score. Yeah, I mean, how old is he now? He's like in it's like ancient. <laughs> I 80s? mean, he's he's old. Yeah. <laughs> like 80. Like late 80s maybe. I mean, it's unbelievable and he just keeps I mean, he started very young. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's 89, just checked. Right. Yeah, I was like, he's ancient, like fully, you know, and he's just, yeah, it's amazing. They, it, they, it just adds so much to seeing the films. I actually find like when the movies are really bad and his music's so great, it actually makes me kind of irritated because I'm like, you don't deserve <laughs> it's like it's slightly this. insulting. <laughs> yeah. God, some of the music from the Duel of the Fates music from the prequel trilogy is honestly among his finest work. And it's like, well... I personally love the prequels. Um, you could listen to our many episodes on the prequel movies, but like I acknowledge that they're not quote unquote good. <laughs> I mean, I hope he had a good time doing that work. I mean, I think he loves it. He knows that it's his magnum opus and he knows that he personally is doing good work. So it's yeah. like the satisfaction of knowing that like you've done your job. Yes. Even Christensen has the opposite end where he's like, I could have done better. <laughs> I mean, yeah, rough. It's, a rough lot yeah i mean i think that's all that we have to say about the the film itself goes without saying that this was just like one of the biggest hits of all time and also it was like very very well received by critics i think there were some complaints about the sort of imitation of that first movie that we mentioned but mostly i think people really really liked it and it was not like with the next movie you get then the like fans are mad and everyone's in a you know, Mishigas about it. But I feel like this movie just was like a positive thing. Yeah. I mean, I think... Crazy to think about. You know, the two leads definitely got like racist and sexist pushback, especially John Boyega. But I think that particularly heated up with The Last Jedi because it was like, it turned into this whole like culture war thing. And, you know. I mean, again, like I'm certain that that was all happening in their like Instagram comments in a horrible way. But like, I just associate that so much more with the second one because as you say, it became like a news... (laughs) a news story in a horrible way but yeah as we said up top it's just i find it really fascinating to think about this movie because it feels like it ushered in a kind of dark era for hollywood because it did so well everyone was like well that's the secret it's like we all need to reboot our franchises we all need to go for nostalgia and it's like well this was already a point where like there was a lot of reboots and nostalgia which has happened throughout the entire history of hollywood but we are now i think at the absolute nadir of that phenomenon yeah But even by the point, like, The Last Jedi was coming out, The Last Jedi is such an obvious, like, critical commentary against that stuff in a lot of ways. And part of the reason why it's so divisive is because, like, it shakes up a lot of ideas that are seen as, like, sacred within a more conservative side of Star Wars fandom. So, like, even by, like, 2017, the idea of nostalgia was, like, getting very divisive. And at this point, it's like people are actively just, like, frustrated and pissed off and are getting really fatigued by the Hollywood landscape. And it's hard to rebel against that when there's like far fewer movies available, yada, yada. We don't need to go into it for like the millionth time on this podcast. But like, 
this film succeeds because it's just really good and it balances out that nostalgia in a way that doesn't seem cheap. Like it doesn't just seem like, oh, hello, Han Solo's here. You know, Han Solo is here for a reason and has like a interesting role that gives the actor something to do. And when he shows up, it doesn't feel like it's the highlight. It's like a cool new thing that's happened in addition to a story that we're already really invested in. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say basically the same thing, which is like, I obviously this movie was going to make a ton of money regardless. It's a Star Wars movie, Rise of Skywalker, which is garbage, also made a ton of money. But this movie is successful because it's a good movie, right? Like, that's actually the secret, is to make good films. Strange, I know, but like... I just refer back to what I was saying about my mom, who like totally dug this film and is not a Star Wars person. Like you can reach those people if you yeah. if you actually make good cinema. Like weird, but and like in terms of the fandom and like especially kids, like the kids who love these movies because like the films are for kids. Like we often criticize just we as like a film criticism establishment dislike the number of movies that are a transparent cash grab in terms of merchandise and stuff. And one of the great things about Star Wars is like, of course it's a transparent cash grab now for Disney with all these theme parks and stuff. But unlike most of the other examples, I feel like there is a lot more authenticity to what they're making in terms of like the props and the costumes and the stuff that they'll like kind of then sell on to be an entertainment experience that the fans are like participating in. Like the people who do get like really embroiled in all of the tie-in materials which are now like this this huge thing which has expanded way more since then because as you've been alluding to throughout the episode like the idea of being able to dress up as Rey like they've designed this costume that you can basically just like make from strips of fabric and you can like be Rey and it's really exciting and cool and I think the idea of like role models in movies is like way over egged but it is a thing like I'm not going to discount it and you know, there's just lots of really cool stuff for people to play with and enjoy and feel good about in this movie, which I don't think is really the case for something like fucking Jurassic World, you know? Oh, I I can agree with you wholeheartedly without having even seen that movie. I feel comfortable making that assumption. I mean, Mr. Trevorrow was fired from his Star Wars movie. So clearly Kathy Kennedy was like, you know what? We don't we don't need to be doing this. But anyway, yeah. Now I totally want to rewatch this again after we just <laughs> talked about it for an hour. So I want to um, see like Ray and Ben take off their little masks for the first time and reveal their young little shiny faces. <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, thank you so much to Asante for requesting this. Was this was so much fun, and hopefully this was a a fun little Christmassy episode for you guys. I always get the urge to rewatch this movie at Christmas since it's come out because it just feels like associated with yeah. December to me. So. I mean, I'm glad that they're taking a break from releasing new movies and I hope they sort themselves out and the next one that comes out is good. But I did like there was several years in a row where for Christmas I could always open the present I gave to myself at Christmas, which was the Star Wars visual dictionary for the new <laughs> film where they have every single prop and background alien with their little Star Wars name written down to them in some piece of ephemera. And I'm like, these are truly the, the top tier of books for me. Some of my favorite books in the world. <laughs> So if you would like to request an episode for us to do or support us in general, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. And if you would like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate it. A five-star review is particularly helpful for our visibility. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, Gavia, 
where can our listeners find you and your work online? So you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And also I have a video essay about kind of the politics and the design and the real life inspirations of the Stormtrooper costumes on my YouTube channel, Behind the Seams. We can link that to that in the show notes Yeah, we can. You can indeed just click on our little website. (laughs) (laughs) And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. You can also find my content at Bustle starting this week, where I am now a staff writer covering movies. It's only part-time, though, so if you want to hire me for something, I'm still available. You can email me. But yeah, that about covers it. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. The Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.